0: Listener Production. What's my name?
1: I have three kids now. They're aged between two and nine. And with the birth of each one, I started to desperately feel the loss of my mum. In 2020, when I found out I was pregnant with my daughter Harper, those complex emotions I had towards mum, they really started to rise up in me, well before she even came into the world. You know, there was always this gnawing feeling inside me that I needed to repair the dysfunction of mother-daughter relationships that had been a theme throughout my whole life with my mum. I knew this was an opportunity for repairing and not repeating. And then when she came into the world and, you know, those first couple of minutes, oh, it makes me so emotional. You know, I knew that I could never let history repeat itself. And I also felt like a lot of emotion towards my mum that was hurt and an anger that she wasn't here and I often wondered if they started the same you know did this love start the same and, and was this the same feeling and something just went so drastically wrong and if it could go wrong for mum could it go wrong for me how in life would I make sure it never happened to me or any of my kids I'm Amelia Roberhardt and welcome to the final episode of Secrets We Keep, Shame, Lies and Family. Over the last eight episodes, I've found out so much about my mum, so much about the time she grew up in, as well as the stories of the women of her generation and the adults that are still looking for answers about their families. In this final episode of the season, I'm looking into addiction in particular, my mum's alcohol dependency. Asking questions that continually circle, what was the pain she was trying to numb? And what could I have done to help? Before I get to my mum's story, I did want to take a moment to reflect on the stories you've heard throughout this series. I want to thank everybody that was vulnerable in coming forward with their story Someone once told me, vulnerability is the antidote to weakness. It's clear these stories have had an impact because of the messages that have come through our inbox. Hello, thank you for your Secrets We Keep podcast. It's really been very
0: enlightening. I've always been so proud to be an adopted child and I've always felt so blessed to have had the parents I grew up with and my brother and all of the families on both sides. A few years ago, I found out my mother has three boys before having my two sisters and I. Unfortunately, my mother passed
1: in 1980,
0: so I was unable to get any answers. I have met one of my half-brothers.
1: Thank you for raising the awareness of the horrendous treatment of so
0: many women and our precious babies that led to forced adoption and separation. It happened to me in 1984. I was 21 years, unmarried and pregnant with a baby who I loved and wanted so much.
1: Hi, I've been listening to your podcast and it has really opened up my understanding of what happened in my family. It has truly helped me understand what my dad's mum probably went through and why she has so much hesitation to connect. It's really kind of exciting to hear other people talking about how I've felt for most of my life. And it sounds so accepted.
2: This story mirrors my own. My mother wishes no contact with me ever and has stated as much as she doesn't want her current husband to know. What I'd like to emphasise is the level of complexity of aloofness throughout the lifespan of the individual and the intergenerational effect.
1: I keep finding myself going back to the number of mothers affected by this era. 150,000 adoptions we know of between 1951 to 1975, remembering it is impossible to know for certain how many of them were forced. Estimates that take a wider time span have that number at over 250,000. And that number's just the mothers. It doesn't include the 250,000 adopted people, the fathers, the siblings, the grandparents, or the adopted families. That's over a million people affected by this time in history. On top of that, there's the stolen generations, and that's affected almost all of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families in some way across Australia over an even longer period of time. How do you even begin to try and heal those traumas? And how do you repair and not repeat? I understand it is impossible for everybody. There's been a lot of water under the bridge, It's something that came up among some of the adoptees we spoke to, who are now trying to navigate their own lives with their own
0: kids. So when Maya was born in 2003, she was my first child.
1: Jennifer McRae is an adoptee. You heard from her in episode six.
0: I remember looking at her through the perspex tub that she was in and marveling at how similar she looked to me i saw lots of myself in her face big eyes and big lips and a cute little button nose and and i'm thinking oh wow so this is this is what my mum didn't get to enjoy when i was born that was a pretty big moment of realizing the awfulness of what my mum must have experienced and all the mums who've had their children taken from them. It's my job to bring an end to all the yuckiness that's come before me and that has affected me. So it's got to end with me so that my kids have a fresh start and can begin again without that burden of traumas that have happened in the past. I hope that they'll be able to say, oh yeah, mum, we can see that, you know, it was hard at times for you, but we can see that you did a good job of growing us up because we're functioning in the world. (laughs) We have friends and family of our own.
1: A Withrow is a late discovery adoptee. Only finding out last year, when she was 50.
0: My son's 11, so he was 10 at the time. I told him straight away because I I don't wanna lie to him. And sometimes he asks me, at the beginning he was really upset about it all because I was so upset about it all, you know? It's not good when your mum's crying all the time. But, you know, he asks me how I'm okay, and I say, oh, you know, I'm I'm going to do this interview today. And he's like, oh, is it adoption stuff? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, oh, okay, that's cool, Mum. So I want him to know that, you know, if a wrong has happened to you, that you can stand up and you can say, no, that's not right and I don't have to accept that. So
1: much of this series is founded in shame. The shame of seeking out contraception, shame of abortion, the shame of unplanned pregnancies and raising children out of wedlock, and the shame of having to give away a child simply because you're not married. I hope this series has helped lessen some of that shame and given the next generations an understanding of what women went through in the not-so-distant past. There is still one more element of this story I wanted to know about. Another stigma I wanted to confront. And that's addiction. I've felt a lot of complex emotions about my role in mum's drinking over the years. Always wondering if I could have done more to help her, or could I have been more supportive. At the same time, I was still a kid. Early in my 20s, mum's drinking intensified and I had no idea what to do. On top of that, our relationship was incredibly strained. I never knew where my place was with her and I definitely did not know how to get her help. I always struggled to understand why she behaved the way she did and what pain was she masking. I was convinced for so many years that she'd had a baby. I thought maybe that baby had been adopted out. Maybe it was rearranged within her own family or as some family members had told me, that the baby had died. I now know that isn't what happened. What was it though that upset her so much? Was it the shame that was put upon her by her family and the church? Was it the times of the 70s when she found herself pregnant as a teenager? Was it the miscarriage? Was it the guilt of the breakup with Michael? Or was it the breakdown of the relationship to my dad? It could be any of these things that explained her drinking, all of them, or simply none of them. What I've realized is that I wasn't alone in being worried about mum. Many of her old friends and acquaintances have reached out to me, remembering the loyal and loving friend that she was and the great time she always provided. They have also recalled with sadness the way their relationships with her broke down as drinking took a grip on her life. The people in mum's life, they were all having conversations amongst themselves about trying to get her help. I think everybody was of the understanding that she needed help, but she was adamant she wasn't an alcoholic and she was adamant she did not need help. It is extremely confronting to watch someone you love deteriorate in the way that she did. But I wondered what it was like from her perspective.
2: My name's Professor Dan Lubman. I'm from Turning Point here in Melbourne.
1: Dan's the Executive Clinical Director of Turning Point. It's an Australian addiction research and education centre. I hoped by talking to him I could understand more about how addiction actually works. So in your opinion, what drives people to become
2: dependent on alcohol and other drugs? There's a whole range of different reasons why people end up developing that sort of condition. We know that it can be related to underlying undiagnosed mental health issues. We know it can be related to underlying trauma. And we also know there's a family history, that there's a genetic component. Well, we have really strong evidence from a whole range of different studies showing that the genetic predisposition to developing particularly severe alcohol problems is incredibly strong. It's one of the strongest genetic links we have in the mental health field. But there's also the environmental component. So if you're growing up in a household where alcohol is normalized, then those factors together can put somebody at great risk of developing an alcohol use disorder themselves. The genetic aspect of addiction has always scared me.
1: In the case of mum though, I do think it was trauma that led her to drinking. I did want to ask Dan about past traumas and how they
2: can lead to addictions. People use alcohol, drugs, gambling, because they change mental states. They switch off pain. We, we all know times in our life where, you know, we've had a difficult situation, and we might have turned, for example, to having a drink to sort of try and get ourselves into a different mental state and, and try and numb some of that anguish. And for people who experience significant pain, whether that's because of underlying physical trauma or mental health trauma, drugs provide a really important emotional blanket in terms of helping people to cope and survive. And in the short term, that might be an important solution in terms of helping people get back on track. But in the long term the problem is is not only do they still have that underlying trauma but they now have developed a new problem which is the addiction
1: i can certainly see the similarities in what happened with my mum and if there is anything i have learnt from this series it's that no one suffers alone how common is dependency on alcohol and other drugs within australia
2: i think it would surprise people to know that around one in four Australians are at risk of developing an alcohol drug or gambling problem at some time in their life. So one in four, that's an amazing stat. And around one in 20 will develop an alcohol drug or gambling problem in their life. The most severe form of the disorder is something we call dependence or addiction. What that raises is the issue that this is something that's incredibly common in the community, yet we don't really talk about it. And we have very, stereotypical views of people who struggle with addiction and we don't realise that it can happen to anyone. Why do you think there's such a stigma associated with dependency and addiction? We know that addiction is the most stigmatised health condition globally and that's because The way in which we think about addiction and talk about addiction is is really as a moral issue rather than as a health issue. So we tend to judge people. We tend to think that they're bad people, they're dangerous people, they're unreliable people because they've chosen to do this to themselves rather than to, like we do for any other health condition, is we look at people with compassion and we look beyond the symptoms and try and understand why is it that this person has developed addiction? What is going on in their life? What is causing this problem? Because of this public stereotype of what we consider to be addiction, if somebody develops this problem, they look at what the community is saying, they look at what it looks like in the newspapers or on film, and they say, well, that's not me. I'm not like that. I'm not that sort of person. That means that people can deny or not want to believe that they're having a problem with it because they don't really picture themselves in terms of the representation we have of this condition.
1: I can see Mum saying these sort of things to herself. Despite everything, she always looked very put together. Her hair was always immaculate, makeup on, nails always painted. I've heard it referred to many times as the disease of denial.
2: There's a lot of internalised shame. And people, because of that, don't feel worthy, don't feel worthy support, don't feel like they deserve help. And it's very isolating. That social isolation can lead to sort of despondency that can drive more alcohol, drug or gambling behaviour. So a vicious cycle of the more you use, the more shame, the more loneliness you feel and, and, and more isolated you feel. And for many people, that stigma stops people from seeking help.
1: How long does it usually take someone to start seeking out treatment?
2: I think the really tragic statistic around this is that we know it can take years, even decades, for people to seek help. One of the stats around alcohol is that, on average, it takes people about 18 years before they put their hand up for help. That is just a terrifying figure because we know, if we think about any other health condition, the earlier that you put your hand up for help, the better your chances of of getting an early recovery. I think one of the great myths is that when we're talking about addiction, it has a very poor sort of outcomes that, you know, not many people get better. And that that couldn't be further from the truth. Over the last 20, 30 years, we've learned a lot more about addiction and what causes addiction and, and how to treat it. Strong evidence around medications that are easy to prescribe and have few side effects that really help people quit. We've also developed a whole range of different psychological therapies that are really helpful in terms of helping people develop the skills, the coping skills, the strategies to really deal with both their addiction and some of the factors that drive that addiction. We understand the condition a lot more. If we're looking at treatment, we can say at least two thirds of people will overcome their addiction and live positive, meaningful lives and meet the goals they want to attain.
1: I did learn a lot from my chat with Dan. I didn't know what to do when I was going through this 12 years ago, but I now know that treatment has come a long way since then. If someone you know is struggling, it's never too late. One big reason for making this series is that I wanted to change one other person's outcome one other person's relationship with their child, parents or their family. And I hope this series has done that. The other reason for making this series was to find out answers about my own mum, which I have. And while I can't change the outcome of our relationship, I was able to change the way I felt about her. And that has given me an immense amount of relief. It would be remiss of me not to mention the person that raised me. During the 20 odd years of tumultuous relationship with my mum, there was always my dad, giving up his life in many ways, professionally and personally, to take on a kid and then a rogue teenage daughter. And it was not an easy feat. He has always had my back and been my number one person. Even in this series, which is much his own story as it is mine, he never once faltered in his unwavering support. What I probably didn't expect is how much of this series would change me in other areas of my life. As a person, a wife, a daughter, and a friend. But most importantly, it's changed the way I look at being a mother. I'm definitely not the best mother, but I am a better mother. And I'll do everything in my power to make sure history doesn't repeat itself. If this episode has raised any issues for you, there is support available. For issues with alcohol and other drugs, you can talk to your GP or contact the National Alcohol and Other Drug Hotline at 1-800-250-015. For information around forced adoption, call 1-800-21-03-13. You can also find links to support in our show notes. This is the final episode of Season 1 of Secrets We Keep. We do have some bonus episodes coming in the next few weeks, though, so keep your eyes out for those. There's going to be a Season 2 of Secrets We Keep. It's currently in the works, uncovering some different Australian secrets. That is coming soon, so subscribe and follow Secrets We Keep to stay up to date. Secrets We Keep Shame Lies and Family is created and hosted by me, Amelia Overhart. Produced by Bonnie Lavelle and Jake Morecambe. Fact checking by Alistair Kirkby. Sound design and mix, Nile Fernandez. Executive producer, Ellen Lee Beater, with thanks to Claire Weaver. Natasha Jobson's the head of news operations, and Melanie Withnell, head of news and information. A massive shout out, too, to everyone that has helped grow this podcast the Listener Newsroom team, the HIT and Triple M news teams and the SEA PR and marketing teams. I hope to be with you again in the not-so-distant future. Until then, thank you for listening.